We are continuing in our study of the life of David. Y'all turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. And every year when I get to this story, the story of David and Bathsheba, yes, it is promotion Sunday, so there are kids here for the first time, and I'm going to talk about David and Bathsheba. I did not plan it that way, but I promise to keep it very PG. I'm a dad myself, so you can count on that. But as we look at the life of David, every time when I'm reading through the Bible, every year when I get to this story, I always have the same emotion. I always have this emotion in my heart that says, is there some way we can change this? Is there some way we can go back in time and warn David and he can make the right choice? I, I, feel, like, I feel like somebody on the, pa- on the deck of the Titanic who knows what's about to happen and is powerless to stop it. And in the same way, remember... If you read the history books, every time there's some national tragedy or national disgrace, whether it's a political scandal like, like uh, Clinton and Lewinsky or Watergate, whether it's, whether it's a, a tragedy like the Titanic or like the attack on Pearl Harbor or like the assassination of JFK or 9-11, there's always a time of soul searching afterwards where we just sit and say, what caused this? How can we keep this from ever happening again? And that's what we should do with this. This is a disaster that's about to happen. A terrible thing that's going to have ramifications for years to come. And as Nathan said, as as we sang, God forgives anything we do. Anything we are capable of, He is capable of forgiving if we will just come to Him. But you better believe there are still lasting effects. Earthly consequences when we make bad choices. And this sermon may come at just the right time for somebody in this room. Maybe more than one person. Because there may be people in this room who who are... stumbling along toward a pitfall. Maybe like David, a a relationship pitfall where you're about to enter into a relationship with someone that will destroy everything you hold dear. Maybe it's more in the area of finances and you've gotten caught up in the race to have as much as the person next door to you. And that desire for more stuff will lead you to compromise your integrity in ways you can never make up for. Maybe it's your your anger and emotions that you hold inside of you and one day they're going to explode and you're going to do or say something you'll regret forever. Or maybe maybe it's your tendency to talk about people behind their backs. That's For some of us, that's our favorite sport. And it seems harmless until it gets back to that person you were talking about. And you can never win that person back. Or or maybe, maybe you struggle with an addiction. In a room this size, there are bound to be several people who are struggling with addiction. and Some of you haven't told anybody. Some of you think that you've got it under control, but you don't. So what do we do? We're all one bad decision from ruining ourselves. Not from losing our salvation. We can't do that, but from ruining so much that God has given us. Let this, let this story be a warning. Let's learn from it. So we start with chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. 
Now, the interesting thing about this, if you look down through history, a lot of preachers like me, a lot of preachers have tried to pin the blame for the story on Bathsheba. It's almost as though we don't want to believe that our hero, David, could be capable of such a thing. Or maybe there's some gender bias in there as well. But we want to say, okay, David was just rocking along, doing good, man after God's own heart, and then this seductive, evil woman comes and steers him in the wrong direction. But I want you to notice that's not what the Bible says. And some people say, well, she was bathing in full view of David. Scholars tell us that in the ancient Middle East, most houses were shaped, were, were built in sort of a U-shape with a courtyard in the middle. And people would often bathe in that courtyard because you didn't want to carry bucket after bucket of water inside your house where it could slosh around and get, make a mess. So you were, you were guarded on, most, on three out of four sides. You would, you would bathe right there in the courtyard. David happened to be at a high enough perch since his house was at the uppermost part of Israel and he's on the top of his house. He just happened to be able to see in. And, and some say, well, but she, she knew he could see and that's why she did it. We don't know that. If you want to project that onto the story, you can, but you won't find it in the text. And others say, well, but she didn't resist. David, David sent for her and she didn't resist. How do we know she didn't resist? After all, he's king. If she resisted, it wouldn't have done any good. I'll remind you what the Bible says is David sent and took her. The Bible puts the responsibility squarely on David's shoulders. There's not one word of condemnation for Bathsheba. And even if you say, well, I still say she set all this up. If you're right, you're right. We can't prove it from the text. But even if you're right, listen to this. The Bible always, here and elsewhere, tells men like me, like David, like many of the men in this room, we are responsible for our eyes, for our minds, for our bodies. No one can make us do something we don't want to do. When Jesus was addressing this issue in Matthew 5, he didn't say, ladies, you, be, you need to tone down your attractiveness. These men, they just can't handle themselves. They can't control themselves. So here's a little gunny sack. You put it over your shoulders, you know, just cut a little slit for the eyes and you'll be okay. That's not what Jesus said. That's what happens when men are in control of a religion. That's how it ends up. It's all, it's all on women. But when, men are, when God is in control, here's what he says in Matthew 5, 28. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus puts the responsibility on us, gentlemen, and it's there, and it should be, and it was for David too. So David's flaw, David's first mistake, was not that he looked out and saw a woman in a bathtub and found her attractive, that's just a natural reaction that would happen to anyone. His problem, his first mistake was he saw that and he didn't take responsibility for his eyes and his mind and his body. So the deed is done. A child is conceived out of wedlock. For the king of any other nation, this wouldn't be a problem because if you're king of Moab or Ammon or Assyria or Babylon, you can have any woman you want. Doesn't matter who she belongs to. No one's going to stop you. But this is Israel. David's king of Israel, where Yahweh, the, the living God, is God. And God has a problem with adultery. And in fact, the Israelite law says the penalty for adultery is death for both parties. So David has a problem. He has an even bigger problem because Bathsheba is not just any other woman. As 2 Samuel tells us, she is the daughter of Eliam and the husband of Uriah. These are two of his mighty men. They're in the list of the mighty men of David, the, the elite warriors, his most loyal soldiers. And later on, we find out that her grandfather, Eliam's dad, 
was a man named Ahithophel who was David's chief advisor. So David has a lot to lose here. And like so many of us, instead of confronting his sin from the start, he covers it up, or at least attempts to. So here's what he does. He sends to the front lines and he says, send me back Uriah. Uriah comes home. David makes a pretense of asking him, tell me what's going on at the front lines. Tell me how the battle's going. They're besieging the city of Rabbah. When do you think they're going to give in? How long do you think they can hold out? And then when that discussion is over, he says, okay, well, you've come a long way. There's no reason to go back today. Why don't you go home? See your pretty little wife. Have a good night's sleep. He knows the people of Jerusalem, everyone will know Uriah came home. They'll see him go into his house. Later on, as months pass, as she starts to show, they won't think anything of it. But Uriah doesn't go home. He pitches a, a, a pallet at the entrance to the city gates. And why does he do this? Uriah is an Israelite soldier. Even though he grew up Hittite, at some point he is converted to the God of the Israelites. And he knows that if you fight a battle for Yahweh, you have to be ritually pure. The Jewish purification law said if you want to be ritually pure to worship or to fight, you had to abstain from that kind of thing for a while. So what Uriah is doing here is he's saying, I, listen, I want to go home. Absolutely. Do I want to see my wife? You bet. But I have a battle to fight. I don't want to show up tomorrow on the front lines and I'm not at my best. So David brings him back and he says, what's the matter with you? Aren't you a man? I mean, if I was married to her, I'd go home to her. There's sort of an implied challenge in what David says. What's the matter with you? He feeds him, he wines and dines him, gets him good and drunk. Even so, Uriah, his integrity holds fast. He spends a second night sleeping on the ground instead of going home. And you know, you would think that in the sight of this kind of integrity, David would be so ashamed of himself that he would confess all. But instead, that kind of integrity just made him mad. He went one awful step further. He wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of the army of Israel, that said, take Uriah, put him on the front lines, withdraw from him so that he is exposed and that he dies. He seals the letter, hands it to Uriah, makes Uriah unwittingly carry his own death warrant back to Rabbah, where his fellow soldiers are laying siege to the city. Now, I don't know how much you know about military tactics. I don't claim to know a lot, but I do know this. If you're laying siege to a walled city, the last thing you want to do is run up to the wall. And that's exactly what Joab makes Uriah and, another, and a whole band of soldiers do. They, they execute a frontal assault on a siege, on a besieged city. Soldiers waiting above them on the walls, waiting to just pick them off. Uriah is killed, and probably several others. When David hears... He takes Bathsheba and makes her one of his wives. Yes, one of his wives. We'll get to polygamy next week. Don't worry. You know, if you're the king of Israel, that seems like the perfect crime. Joab knows, maybe a couple of others, but they're not telling. Because you're king. It's good to be king. You get away with a lot. But look what it says in chapter 11, verse 27. But the thing he had done displeased the Lord. <clears throat> the eyes of the Lord search to and fro to see those whose hearts are fully his. He knows. He's not going to let it pass. So he sends Nathan, the prophet, the faithful prophet, to David to confront him. 
And I want you to notice what happens. This is my favorite part of the story. Nathan does not walk in like your stereotypical religious person who's just interested in holding the moral high ground. He doesn't walk up and say, hey, David, you're guilty of coveting and adultery and murder and lying. That's four out of the ten commandments. You deserve to die four times. No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he's more interested in redemption than he is in being sanctimonious. He's more interested in winning David's heart and rescuing him than he is in being right. And so he tells him a story. Let's pick it up. Chapter 12, middle of verse 1. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to David, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You see with the genius of Nathan here, he tells this compelling story. The story that stirs emotions, but he doesn't tell David that it's a story. David thinks that as king, he's being asked to render judgment on an actual case. Now, in the Israelite law, it said that if you stole something, you had to pay it back fourfold. So that was the just punishment. David mentions that. But there's a Hebrew scholar named Robert Alter who points out something interesting about human nature here that that Nathan knows. He says, when you feel really guilty about something you've done, usually one of your responses is to become especially judgmental. You'd think it would make you humble, but it does the opposite. When you feel guilty and you know you've done wrong, you're especially harsh in your judgments of others because it makes you feel better about yourself. We see that every time another sanctimonious politician gets caught in an affair or stealing money or in some other way breaking the law. They fall left and right. And the reason they were so verbose, so, so outspoken about righteousness is they were trying to prove themselves righteous. David, instead of declaring, okay, get the guy to pay back fourfold and everything's solved, he says, this man deserves to die. And he's rendering judgment upon himself. Now, the story gets better from here, I promise. But first, it's going to get worse. And we're going to talk about that next week, the long-term effects of sin. But today, we're just focusing on the mistake David made, actually the mistakes he made, and how we can avoid them. Again, Every single one of us is capable of one of these things. What can we do to avoid them? What can we learn from this story? Three things that I hope we take away from this. Three things we should know about ourselves. Number one, I am capable of the worst. You just need to know that. Every one of us needs to know that. I am capable of the worst. After World War II, according to Tim Keller, after World War II, people widely wondered, why did the Allies take so long to raid the Nazi death camps? Why did they take so long to even believe the rumors that had been around for over 10 years that this was going on? Franklin Roosevelt himself said that he couldn't believe until he saw it with his own eyes that a culture like Germany that had produced people like Mozart and Bach and Goethe was capable of that much evil. 
You can understand why he thinks that way. They're just like us. If they could do something like that, so could we. We don't want to believe that. When Carrie and I were dating, her youth minister was our Sunday school teacher. We were in the college and career department. And he taught us every week. And this, this was a, a spectacular man. He's one of my favorite ministers of all time. He actually did our wedding. Um, he, had, he had a rule in his youth group. So when Carrie was growing up, all through junior high and high school, you could, you could discuss something in Bible study, right? You could say, here's what I believe. But if you did, you had to back it up with Scripture. So if some you know, junior high kid or high school kid raised their hand and said, well, here's what I think about God, he would say, okay, where do you find that in the Bible? And that had an impact on those kids. That had an impact on my future wife. I, in fact, I would say, aside from her mom and dad, he's probably the person most responsible for who she is. And so he taught our class, which was great. Every week I'm getting real powerful Bible teaching. But one Sunday we got onto the subject of, of adultery, and I don't remember in what context, but he said something that shocked me and kind of offended me. He said, you know, I'd love to be able to say I, I would never do that, but the truth is I can't say that. And I didn't say anything, but in my heart of hearts, I'm thinking, come on, man. Be bold enough to just stand up and say, I will never cheat on my wife. But I was 20 years old, and I knew everything. Man, I wish I was that smart again. I really do. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul writes, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Every one of us is capable of the very, very worst. And the minute we think we are not capable of it, that's when we're most susceptible. You know, as a pastor, it grieves me when I see other preachers who stumble into immorality of various kinds and lose their ministry forever. It also grieves me when I hear the reaction of my fellow Christians because it's usually a shaking of the head and yeah, I always knew and people will say things like, well, you know, I could tell there was something wrong with him and I want to say, you know, there's something wrong with us. It's not just him. The old Puritan preacher John Owen had a saying and I love this. You might want to write this down. John Owen used to say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Killing sin, that's, that's what the old Puritans called mortification. That's not a word we use today, but it means to put something to death. It's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5 when he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Jesus was not literally advocating self-mutilation. He was saying, do whatever it takes. Sin is tenacious. Don't pull up the weed by the top, dig it out by the roots. Don't Sweep the spider aside, stomp on it. Whatever you have to do to get rid of sin in your life, get rid of it or it will get you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So I want to ask you a question. What sin am I killing in my life right now? I don't mean me, I mean you. Ask yourself the question. What sin am I killing in my life right now? What sin are you going before the Lord with every day and saying, Lord, I need you to make me humble. Lord, I need you to make me a man of self-control. Lord, I need you to make me a woman of patience. Lord, I, may, I need you to fix my eyes on what is right. What sin are you killing right now in your life? Actively fighting against. Another way to ask the question. In what area of my life am I most likely to stumble? If years from now we're looking back and we're telling this kind of story about you, what kind of stumble would it be? Would it be in the area of sexuality, money, relationship, temper, emotion, addiction? 
Here's another way to ask the question. What sin, bad habit, or flaw am I most likely to regret years from now? Listen, this is not happy stuff. I know, I know you're wishing I would tell a joke right now, but this is necessary. You need to confront these things because every single one of us is capable of the worst. If you lie to yourself about this, it could be fatal. Number two, I need some truth tellers in my life. That also is true of you and me. You ever wonder why so-called great people so often fall? World leaders, famous preachers, other well-respected people, and suddenly you read terrible things about them. How could these things be true? My theory is that absolute, unadulterated adoration is not good for anybody except God. Yes, we all need to know we're loved. Yes, we all need encouragement. Sometimes we need applause. But if all we get is, you're so great... Sign my autograph book. Can I take a selfie with you? If all we get is adoration, we're missing something key. We need people who speak truth into our lives. We need that person who says, no, you're not going out of the house looking like that. We need people who will say to us, why are you drinking so much? Do you really think this is healthy? I don't think it's healthy. We need people who look at us and say, you know, I was watching you interact with her, and I'd call that flirting. I don't know what you call it, but it looked like flirting to me, and I bet your wife would think so too. We need people who will say to us, no, I'm not going to loan you any more money. You need to get a handle on your spending right now. If you need to move in with me, okay, but I'm not loaning you another dollar. Not the way you are right now. Do you have any of those people in your life? See, the truth is we tend to avoid those kinds of people. I mean, think about it. If you got in a fight today with your spouse or your boyfriend, girlfriend, or, or your parents or somebody important in your life, and you went to two friends to complain about that person, and the first friend said to you, you know what? You are absolutely in the right. They are absolutely in the wrong. You deserve better. I'm here for you. Let's talk about how evil they are. And the second friend said, well, let's walk through this again. Let's see the things you did to make things worse. I know they're in the wrong too, but you know, you could have prevented this if you hadn't been so harsh or if you would have answered differently or, you know, you probably need to apologize soon because you don't want to burn that bridge. Which friend are you going to go to next time? You're going to go to that first friend because we want the friends who tell us what we want to hear, but we need that second friend. Do you have that second friend in your life? See, this is why we have life groups. This is why we don't just come and sing songs and hear a sermon and go home. So I hope you're involved in a small group here in our church. And I hope you don't just go and listen to a Bible study and go home. I hope you actually get together with someone of your own gender afterwards and go out, go out to eat or go play golf or go shopping or spend time together so that there's someone who is with you all the time on a regular basis. And I hope you've told them, listen, if you see something in me you don't like, Point it out, and I promise I will take it. In front of all, however hundred many people there are in this room, let me just publicly say, if you see something in me, Jeff, your pastor, please come tell me something you are concerned about. And if I get mad at you for it, then God's judgment be on me, because you're doing me a favor. We need truth tellers. You know something interesting? If you look at 1 Chronicles 3, there's a list 
uh, of all David's sons. Now, that section of Chronicles, we just skip through because name after name after name. But when you look through the list of the names of David's sons, you see an interesting name there. And that's the name Nathan. See, David didn't name his sons after anybody he knew, as far as we can tell. None of his mighty men, none of his brothers, not his dad, not Samuel. But he named a child Nathan. And not just any child, but a child that he had with Bathsheba. And that tells you something. That tells you David looked back and said, Nathan was my true friend because he confronted me. He told me the truth. He saved my life. And that brings me to my third point. We need truth tellers, but we need more than that. We need the grace of God. In fact, I can't live without God's grace. Last week we talked about we've got to never get over the gospel. And this is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. No, every day without the grace of God, I can't survive. I have to spend time in prayer with him before I walk out that door. I have to get my heart right. I have to call upon his name for strength. Otherwise, I will stumble. Otherwise, I will wreck things. Psalm 51, David wrote in the aftermath of this terrible tragedy. And it's a beautiful psalm. One of these days, we'll do a message just on that. It's, for my money, the, the most eloquent words. They're the most eloquent words that have ever been written on the subject of repentance. But let me just show you verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What's he talking about there? Israelite worship was sacrifice. So whereas you and I go and we go to church and we give an offering and we, we hear a sermon and we sing songs, the Israelites' worship was, I go and I give a sacrifice. What David's saying is, you don't really want my worship. Not just that. You want something more. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And I'm here to tell you, He's not looking at how much you put in the offering plate. He's not listening to how well you sing. He's not even keeping a checklist of how many times you show up on Sunday morning. Although if it were up to me, you'd be here every time. What God's concerned about is the condition of your heart. He wants your heart to be broken. And do not misunderstand that. That doesn't mean he wants you to be sad and miserable because the fruit of the Spirit is joy. David prays in Psalm 51 that God would restore the joy of his salvation. We should be joyful people, but our hearts before the Lord should be broken. And what that means is every day we come before him saying, Lord, without you, I don't dare take a breath. Without you, I cannot survive. Because why? Because I'm a broken person and I need your help. And we get specific about it. Eugene Peterson has pointed out the similarities between Nathan and David and Pilate and Jesus. So, so hear this. David, with David, the one who was sitting in judgment should have been the one on trial, Right? But with Jesus, the one on trial should have been the one sitting in judgment. Nathan pointed to David and said, you are the man. Pilate brought Jesus before the angry mob and said, behold the man. Nathan told David, your sin has been taken away. You will not die. Even though he committed capital crimes, he would be spared. Whereas Jesus had never committed a single sin and he did die. He died for David's lust, his adultery, his murder, his lies. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. And only he can hold you up. Only he can keep you from falling. It's not enough just to say, I believe. Yeah, I believe what the Bible says about him. It's not enough to come to church all the time. It's not enough to try really hard to be good. You have to live every day on his grace. You have to come to him daily. 
and say, Lord, here are the specific ways I know I am weak. I'm lustful. I'm proud. I have a tendency to shade the truth, to get ahead. I have a bad temper. I love money and the stuff it can buy. I'm lazy. I go along with the crowd so it'll make me look good. Give me the strength. Give me the wisdom to pass the test today and every day. Help me kill these sins by your power so they no longer have power over me and I can walk in freedom. Surround me with truth tellers and give me the wisdom to listen to them. And Lord, when I see somebody who needs to hear the truth from me, give me the boldness to speak it. Do you pray something like that every day? Don't walk out of your house without praying that. Do you realize how dangerous this world is? And how powerful our God is and how much he wants to shepherd us to freedom and, and help. But most of all, just pray to him, Lord, I need you close to me. I need you to take captive my thoughts. I need to have you at the top of my mind all through the day. I need to walk with you. Because only you can shepherd me through this world. There's an old, old hymn. Some of you know, Jesus, keep me near the cross. For there a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory forever, till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river.